Hey, Intelligence Squared listeners, producer Faye Adabita here. I just wanted to let you know about our first Intelligence Squared collection, Black History and Culture. We're revisiting some of our favorite live events and podcasts from the past 20 years, showcasing great creators and thinkers, including the co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement, Alicia Garza, poet and activist, Benjamin Zephaniah, and playwright, novelist, critic, and broadcaster, Bonnie Greer. We also delve into debates such as should the West pay reparations for slavery and hip hop versus Shakespeare. Just search Intelligence Squared, Black History and Culture, wherever you get your podcasts. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades – And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we're joined by Emma Dabbery and Alex Renton. They discuss how the historical legacy of slavery still impacts society today and what we can all do to dismantle racism in society. It's a really fascinating conversation, and it was chaired by Intelligence Squared's Farah Jassat, and we hope you enjoy it. Now, let's go to the episode. Hello, and welcome to this Intelligence Squared event on race reckoning and what everyone can do next. I'm Farah Jassat. I'm a journalist and head of podcast at Intelligence Squared, and I'll be your host this evening. So tonight, I'm delighted to be joined by two fantastic guests. We have Emma Dabbery, an academic, activist and broadcaster. She's a teaching fellow at SOAS, University of London. She's the author of Don't Touch My Hair and her most recent bestseller, What White People Can Do Next, From Allyship to Coalition, is a fascinating essay where she deconstructs the myth of race and challenges ideas of allyship in the current liberal anti-racist movement. Our second guest is Alex Renton. He's a journalist, author, and campaigner. He's won numerous awards for his investigative journalism, war reporting, and food writing. He's the author of Stiff Upper Lip, which uncovered sexual abuse within the British private school system. And his latest book, I've got here as well, is Blood Legacy, Reckoning with a Family Story of Slavery. It dives into his own family history and explores the role that his ancestors played in the slave trade. So Emma and Alex, welcome. Good afternoon. afternoon. (laughs) So you've both written books that look at the legacy of slavery and how it impacts the world we live in today. But they're very different books, both in terms of style and content. Emma, let's start with yours. It's an extended essay. And the title is pretty stark. As I said, what white people can do next. Is it meant to be a provocation? 
So it's absolutely meant to be a provocation. It's quite a clickbaity title. The subheading is less clickbaity and is is a little bit more revealing of what it is that I'm really getting to. But the the instruction, what white people can do next, is taking the language, you know, of the current anti-racist moment, the way we are speaking to each other and using using that, tapping into it. But within, I think, three or four pages, I've unpacked why the name is like a little bit preposterous. You know, I could have called it what everybody can do next, but it doesn't have the same impact. And also it fails to identify the fact that the book really is about race and the racial taxonomy, the hierarchy of human beings into racialized groups that we have inherited, a system that we've inherited from long dead elite white men. You know, the architecture of race that we still use to understand ourselves and each other comes from the early period of the of the transatlantic slave trade by Englishmen and Scottishmen um, in, in the colonial Caribbean and in what will become the United States. Well, we'll be getting into that architecture of race in a moment. I want to go to Alex so you can tell us a little bit about your book, which is A Family History. And your ancestors had a lot of paperwork, which became the primary research uh, source for your research. In the book, there was an interesting line at the beginning where you pose a question, Alex. You say... How could I, a stereotype of a white liberal, ripe with post-imperial guilt, best exploit my privilege and my access to these papers? What did you mean by that? Well, I think I, I, you know, I'm 60 years old. I had one of those expensive educations that the elite in Britain get. And it turns out to have been, especially when the empire, where the empire is concerned, largely to have been cover up and propaganda. And I also, as a journalist, I was lucky enough for a few years to travel around what you might see as the the ruins left by some of my ancestors, who were many of them imperial governors and generals and admirals, in, in the, from Africa to the Middle East and, and so on, in, in the sense of, I, I saw firsthand, you know, but from a white privileged journalist's point of view, just how badly the empire had done and what and the mess the ongoing mess it had left so when i stumbled across a pile of papers in my grandfather's basement going back covering 100 years 400 years of family history and realized an awful lot of them were to do with jamaica and tobago i thought i've got to have a look but the point was not i'm not a historian and it wasn't to write a history it was to write about what this history meant today and what it could be used for in the sense of making things better. Well, do you want to give us a little bit of an overview of who your family was and, you know, the role that they played uh, in the British slave trade, specifically as Scots? Yes. So so uh, the Fergusons of my mother's family were were... Highly educated, influential Scots from the elite. They were lawyers and soldiers, you know, over 400 years and members of parliament as well. And and significantly, when they got into the slavery industries uh, in the mid 18th century, rather late compared with some of their neighbours and friends, they were Enlightenment Scots. 
So my, the principal ancestor, Sir Adam Ferguson, was a an MP for the Whig Party. He was he knew Hume. He was a philosopher. He'd done the Grand Tour. He'd had the best education known to white Europeans of the era, and he was considered a liberal. So it seemed to me really significant when I started reading his letters uh, to see how he what see quite clearly what he felt about the Africans that he bought and enslaved and to all intents and purposes murdered, given that their lives were on average four years on his plantations. So that's the key of it. What, what, what is also in the papers, and in a way, you know, because my intention really is to, to try and tell the vast number of complacent middle-class white Britons here who discount or are ignorant, as I was, of this history, just what it really meant. And those the papers brilliantly allow you to do that because one of my great-great-great-great-uncles went to Tobago and bought land and Africans and worked worked it. My the, the MP, Sir Adam Ferguson, sits in his in Westminster or in, in Edinburgh or in his his uh, in his grand house in Scotland writing orders as a Christian, including, you know, again and again instructions to buy more girls and young women so that they can take advantage of the rise in prices due to the abolition of the slave trade and breed more people. So you draw some pretty stark conclusions from that. And they have a lot to say about race in Britain today, I think. How did you square in your research the fact that your ancestors, as, as you mentioned, you know, were seen as enlightenment gentlemen of their time? You know, he knew Robert Burns, uh, you know, philosophers at that time. How, how did you square that person, personally? Well, with myself today. As in the fact that he was well respected at the time and you say admired in all other areas of life except for this one. And I'm wondering how, how you think individuals at that day, you know, justified it to themselves. Well, I mean, it's quite clear to me from his letters, well, he's suddenly conflicted. There were confusing messages in his letters, but it's quite clear that as a Christian, he, and a believer in the rights of man and a friend of Adam Smith, the economist and so on, he, he considered the Africans less than human. He couldn't have done as a liberal, good man of his time. He couldn't have done what he, he, he did uh, without doing that. And it's also clear that the, the, because we owned the plantation in Jamaica till 1875, so right through the, ab the abolition of slavery itself, that his descendants, my great-great-great-grandfather, Sir Charles Dalrymple Ferguson, a, a member of the Assembly of the Church of Scotland, a, a, a man educated in the sciences and also a lawyer, he, who got nearly over a million pounds in compensation for the 198 people enslaved on the plantation in Jamaica in 1836, was a was well known as a philanthropist. There is a monument to him. But he built churches and schools for mm -hmm. the poor in Lothian and Ayrshire, did not a single thing for the 198 people who were essentially abandoned on the plantation after they were given their freedom, as the expression used. Uh, so that racist-based ignorance of among the highly moral people who would, were considered highly moral for their time continues right through into, you know, what is clearly the modern age. And the other thing that struck me really from the beginning reading the letters is, you know, I, I, think, I naively I thought this is going to be interesting because I, I empathize with these people in the sense that I understand their language and their culture. I get their jokes. 
they don't feel so different from me. So the, I'm going to show that slave owners weren't necessarily frothing psychos as we see in the movies. But then I realized that my educated liberal ancestors were in many ways far worse than the uneducated, brutal white men that come through in, in, in movies about slavery because they knew they had the same value systems as I do, as I grew up with. So it, be, it all became more and more relevant. And, and one of the most frustrating things, sorry, <laughs> I'll stop going on in a moment, is when again and again I get told by people, but you're judging your ancestors by the standards of today. How ridiculous. And you go, no, I'm not. They were people like me. I could have been them. That's the awful thing. And not only that, but you know, half a million people, including their own friends and fellow MPs, were campaigning against for the abolition of slavery at the same time as they were deciding to continue with it. Standards then, 1800 and now, were not so very different. So we have to, people like me have to stop reaching for these excuses. And this is old history yeah. is one of the most, most ridiculous of them, you know. Well, Emma, I want to bring you in. You you recently read Alex's book. What was what was your reaction reading it? And also this point of dehumanization, which Alex brings up, is not something that's only limited to the past. How do you think dehumanization of other racial groups plays out today? Yeah, thank you. So I read Alex's book and was utterly utterly gripped by it. It's yeah, really an incredible book. I've read a lot of books and material, you know, set in that kind of time period and in that part of the world, you know, dealing dealing with this type of history. But I don't know that I've read one that's been written by a descendant of the people that are being that are being discussed in the book, with the exception, I've read, I've read some books that are written by, you know, black Caribbean writers who look at the um, history of slavery, but they, and they have, they do have, they are often the descendants of slave owners as well, but they have a very different uh, relationship to, to, to it in that they're not heirs. They haven't lived, you know, they haven't lived privileged these are their, maybe their forebears, but, you know, that's through history of the sexual exploitation of, of black women that was, that was systemic at the time. So I don't think I've read a book like this written by a white kind of descendant of these slave-owning families. So it was very fascinating for me. And in, a, in many ways, it's a blood legacy and what white people can do next are in many ways kind of companion pieces. And the work that Alex does in Blood Legacy is kind of my book in praxis. You know, I different, as I say in the book, what people can do next will look like different things to different people, you know. But for somebody with the for somebody with Alex's position, I feel like writing this book, engaging with the reality of his family's history and making it so clear, demonstrating, making it so apparent, the links between the wealth, you know, that was generated through this exploitation of Africans and the relationship to power and the British Empire and how that still influences power and privilege to this day is exactly the type of narrative that we need to be mainstreaming and that just needs to be, you know, 
it's it's just that reckoning that Britain needs to have with the truth of its history and the way that continues to affect in uh, sorry in, in the way that continues to affect opportunity opportunity and advantage to this very day you know so it's 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 such a valuable and important an important book and also another thing that i found really in, really fascinating in terms of parallels with what white people can do next is it's fleshing out and giving a narrative and giving us individual like characters in people that we can name and have some awareness of of of, of who they were that fleshes out the history that I talk about when I'm talking about these slave codes these acts for the better governing of quote unquote negroes that are created in the colonial caribbean that introduced the idea of a of a white race you know that becomes codified into law in in the late 1600s it's fascinating to hear Alex talking about his ancestors being involved in writing in, in being involved in some there's i think a 1700s mid 1700s 18th century act for the better governing of quote unquote negroes that your forebear James in Tobago is involved in so you know it's 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 it, it sits it's the history that I'm talking about in my book brought brought to life and that process of dehumanization that allows these upstanding members upper echelons of society to you know willingly engage in not just individual acts of brutality but in a a, a system of you know just gr- gross and psycho- kind of psychotic violence is finds its origins in that invention of race that I talk about in the book and one of the primary reasons that the idea of you know a white race and a black race had to be had to be engineered in order to create this idea of white inherent superiority and the natural order of things being that people who came to be racialized as white through these laws that were enacted in the colonial caribbean were the natural lords and masters of people who came to be racialized as black who were not fully human and as not fully human could be brutalized and exploited in this in this way so the parallels between our two books are, are really striking talking about the invention of race in your book do you think, you know, ever since last year with the murder of George Floyd, you know, in the UK, this, the toppling of the statue of Edward Colston, it feels like white people are discussing race and the history and legacy of slavery more openly and actually referring to themselves as white people more readily. Do you think the concept of whiteness has become more visible? So one of the things that I discuss in the book is the fact that one yes one of the things that has changed is this naming of whiteness in a way that I haven't seen to such an extent before you know there's been whiteness studies my phd looks at the social construction of racial categories so within that field of of scholarship you know these conversations were happening but in terms of mainstream um naming of whiteness that was something that you didn't see and it's something that is important because it is the unnamedness of 
the unnamedness of whiteness, the, the racial category white doesn't present itself as a racial category. It just presents itself as the, as, as human, the default norm from which everybody else deviates. Everybody else is a person of color. Everybody else is a racialized other. But white people aren't white people. They're just people, you know? So what we've seen is the naming of whiteness. That is something that needs to happen. But concurrently, what would need to happen with that would be in the naming of whiteness, making sure that as we're naming it, we are not doubling down on the idea that it is a biologically stable and truthful category. And that's one of my fears about the current anti-racist movement. We're seeing this further naming of race. We're seeing, we're seeing this naming of whiteness. But what needs to occur with that is a real understanding of the constructed nature of the racial category white. And the reason that the idea of a white race was even invented in the first place, which was the subjugation of black people. If you just name whiteness, name whiteness, without ever really unpacking what that means, you become further wedded to that articulation of self. And the idea of a white, and central to the concept of a white race, enshrined in it from its earliest origins, is this idea of an inherent and a biological superiority. And if you just keep naming whiteness without doing the necessary work of really understanding how it's also a social construction and why it was invented, then you risk further enshrining that truth status of the racial category. I, I to briefly, I, I, I mean, one of the Emma's book is a fantastic piece of work. I told her I've been recommending it all of you can see all my notes in the back. What one of the picking up on what you just said, I mean, one of the points that you, you really expressed very well for me, and I hadn't really thought about it before, was exactly that about, about the nature of whiteness and that whiteness can only come into being because the enslavers and their like insisted upon making this distinction. And once you'd invented blackness, as, as whatever it was, a less than human culture, you then had, then whiteness then had to emerge. And, and it, it, it is, of course, incredibly important. And, and I think, but the point you make in the book is because you, you, you talk about the history of anti-racism and the problems with anti-racism as a movement, especially when, when espoused by white people, is, is that it is so ahistoric, which is the word you use, and that we really deeply need... We, one of the reasons for doing my book is realising that the great historical gap, particularly because of the bad education system in my country, better in Ireland, I think you say, is... Um, it, it, it is we don't this the context of why you need and need to be anti-racist just isn't there and it and we do need to learn it we really do yes absolutely so the starting point for me is the historical in in the in my book is the historical period that you're focused on in yours so it's it's just it's so necessary that there is a, a mainstreaming of that history because it's through that history that we understand why things are the way they are now you know and w w without that context without that context i i fear for the I, we're not going to make the necessary progress and, and you you explain that really brilliantly in the book it, it's very useful i'm so glad thank you an interesting point you also mentioned in the book, Emma, about whiteness is how it's used against white working class people. Can you uh, expand on that? Because you speak about 
you know, racism not just being about skin colour. It's a whole system of exploitation and class is a big part of that. Yeah. So one one of the... Okay, no, before I get to that. So when this idea of a white race is, you know, introduced and becomes codified into law through these slave codes, the, the primary objective is this, you know, this, this uh, hierarchy that positions white as superior and black as, as, as inferior. But one of the other consequences of it, one of the other things that this idea achieves is um, this idea that becomes incredibly popular, you know, race as, as a meme is one of the most kind of successful and enduring stories of, um, of, of uh, probably of human civilization. But one of the other things it does is it transforms this motley crew of people. There's everybody from like, you know, Scottish landowners to felons, to indentured Irish, to just all of these people who are European, but, you know, have very little in common with each other and certainly would have no sense of themselves as having a shared identity. One of the things it does is give them this new identity as white people. Okay, so it takes what is actually like a very diverse group a very different, you know, socioeconomic, very different uh, material realities and very different cultures as well, often, you know, and gives them this new identity as white. And the reason that that is necessary um, in the con- in this context, in the colonial, in, 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 in these English colonies is you see these, these laws first emerge in colonial Barbados in 1661. You see them in Jamaica shortly afterwards. And you see them in Virginia after a rebellion called Bacon's Rebellion. And what's interesting about the, where we, when we start to see these laws introduced and this idea of, of, of whiteness being, you know, kind of engineered and introduced is it's after, in Barbados and, and Virginia, it's after there have been series of uprisings in Barbados where indentured Irish and enslaved African have come together and attacked the landlords, you know, because they see them as a common enemy. Similarly, in Virginia, you have what is seen as a, what is called as a a union of commoners, where indentured English and enslaved Africans come together to attack the elite English and Scottish landowners who exploit their labor. What the idea of a white race does and the laws that follow is it shuts down those type of coalitions ever happening again because the white indentured laborers come to see themselves, sorry, not the white indentured laborers, they're not white yet. The European indentured laborers come to see themselves as white people and see their their fates and their fortunes, you know, more in alignment with other white people, even if they're rich white people. And then they now, there's now a situation whereby people who, black people now have no rights, you know, indentured laborers can, I mean, it's a, indentured labor is a pretty shitty existence, but it's very different to slavery in that it ends, you know, it's for a period of maybe like a maximum of like seven years and it ends. And when it ends, you do have the, at least the carrot and sometimes the possibility because some indentured laborers did go on to become very wealthy themselves of entering into that elite, you know, kind of like white class making your fortune. Whereas the laws that are introduced then 
condemn people of African descent to slavery in perpetuity for their natural life, but also the life of their of their children and their children's children. It's in perpetuity and it's never ending. And they have no human rights, you know. And so even those indentured laborers who are also exploited essentially have the power of life and death over people of African descent. You can do anything to somebody of African descent and they can't give evidence, you know, in court. They can't defend themselves in any way. They have no, they have no human rights, you know? So whiteness is powerful. But then what whiteness can be used for is to, you know, kind of manipulate those white working class people, you know, to actually sometimes act in ways that are not in their own best interest. And it shuts down those coalitions that, you know, had sometimes emerged between enslaved African and indentured in attacking the power base and that were so threatening to the status quo, were so threatening to to power in those contexts and actually maybe had the potential to bring about some form of change to make those colonies ungovernable, you know? Well, actually, your point about no justice at all for for, for the enslaved, there, there's a really interesting story in your book, Alex, which I'd love you to Kind of summarize, if you can, about Augustus Thompson, and you, you'll be able to elaborate on his idea of trying to seek justice. Uh, I think our audience will be fascinated to to get a summary of that story. Yes, it's it is extraordinary. I mean, there are three or four accounts, first-hand accounts of being enslaved under the British in existence. All all Olaudé Kianos and others, all published. By as part of the anti uh, the anti slave trade movement in the 1790s or before, uh, this one is 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 a direct account. It's 900 words of direct a deposition, a testimony by one of my ancestors' enslaved workers, who was a man called Doctor Caesar. Of course, that name was thrust on him. He renamed himself Augustus Thompson, who was a senior enslaved person on the plantation. He, he was the doctor, a vet, and he had a common-law wife and children. His mother were there as well. And he fell out with one of the Scottish white overseers, a man who'd come in as an indentured man, in fact. And while the manager was away, and he was savagely punished which include whippings for him and all his family and his house being burnt down and his possessions being taken. So he, as many of us might, decided to go to the boss and ask, say, that the underlings were misbehaving and he'd like some justice. But to do this, he had to run away from the plantation, putting his life at risk, and smuggle himself onto a ship and get to London. And in London, he turned up on my six-times great-uncle Sir Adam Ferguson's doorstep in St. James's with his written account of what had happened and asked for justice. And... He was no longer a slave, of course, in Britain in the 1780s. He was a free man. But my uncle, he wrote rather proudly, rather pleased with himself, uh, managed to persuade Augustus Thompson to return to Jamaica, where his life was definitely at risk as a runaway, and go back uh, to his wife and family in the plantation with a promise that his, his complaint had been heard and that um, no punishment would be exerted on him. But as soon as... Augustus Thompson was back on the ship, my great uncle, an honourable man, a man who talks an awful lot in his letters about a man's duty and honour and, and you know, what the upper classes should do morally, wrote to the manager of the plantation and said, actually, do what you like with him. 
It's a gruesome, it's a dreadful story, and the story doesn't end well at all for Augustus Thompson or obviously his family, his enslaved family. But what it says to me again is, is that my honourable member of parliament, man who's, who'd have, who, to, who would have found others' view of him and his honour very important to him, could give his word to a, a black man and that was of no meaning whatsoever. He could betray him without a second thought. And that's what he did. And it, it's so it, it's it's not a story of plantation cruelty. And there are lots of those, I'm afraid, in the book or of, of rapes and and the selling of people's children from from their arms. It, but it's a story of an act of total immorality in terms of how human beings should treat each other when mercy and justice is asked for for a man who was a lawyer himself. So it struck me, that story. I just wanted to say, could I very quickly on Emma talking about whiteness and this sort of edification of whiteness. It's really interesting because you can see in, in the plantation records that a lot of mixed race children were born there. And they would all have been because no children were ever, were, were ever born, but were ever bought. They would, were all, would all have been the children of the white workers and who exploiting the black the black enslaved women and and it's quite significant that you see these what they called mulatto children immediately get better jobs because the very fact that there is no white blood in them means they're slightly less to be treated as slaves than people who are only of African heritage and and one of the things I came across was the disgust of the British who thought the French were barbarians because they allowed, I quote, mulatto people to work in the fields on, in Haiti before the revolution there. And, of course, the British thought that was a disgusting thing to do to somebody who had some white blood in them because it was the worst work. So the, the mixed-race children got to work in the houses, but they were still sold because they were still property. And was, wasn't um, the story of uh, Tom, Augustus, sorry, what's his name, Thomas? Augustus Thompson. Augustus Thompson, he's he's listed as a mulatto as well, yes. isn't he? He's listed as mulatto and Creole in the adverts. Yes, yeah, so Creole means you were born in Jamaica, not in Africa. So yes, I mean part of his preferred status in that you know he was allowed to earn money. He he was a vet and he he would have done some doctoring work as well. Yeah, that's a, a perfect example of it. But it's also this it, is part of the British system, colonial system, sowing division among people of African heritage. Because quite clearly you get to the 1830s and, and emancipation comes around and people then legally called coloured, I'm using the quotes, have a higher status um, and get better jobs. And so they have an interest in trying to keep the people of darker skin down. And everyone I met in Tobago and Jamaica when I visited to go and see the sites of our plantations, who I said, to whom I said, what, is, what, what about slavery most affects you today? They all said colorism, this absurd gradation about skin tone impairing your life or giving you more more possibilities in life. Uh, and it really rankles. And again, as an ignorant, ignorant white person and a, a descendant of all this, I didn't know this. I'm ashamed I didn't know this. 
But it's directly from what we did, directly from the systems we used. I thought your discussion of colorism was really good. And I, I'm, I'm always interested in how, as you're saying, you know, the people who created this system are often those are the descendants, rather, of the people who created these systems are often absolutely clueless as to their existence today and the continued way that it it, it, um, the way it continues to affect access and access and opportunity. I, I, um, I, I mean, I was until five years ago. I mean, I have to confess it. I mean, I, I mean, I, I ask educated people. You know, sorry, again, keep using air quotes here, but I'm going to say air quotes around educated as well because when I look at my education, I go, what, 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 why was it called that? Frankly, <laughs> miseducation, serving up of propaganda, um, and educated people who are in white people who are interested in this subject and I go okay right so you, you were really on it uh, when 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 was British slavery ended when did British slavery in the Caribbean end and then I go and how many how, how many Africans do you think the British transplant um, transported and enslaved across the Atlantic and literally one in ten will get even 1830s yeah and if you ask if you ask them was it 300,000 or 3.25 million most of them will say 300,000. Yeah. We are so yeah. ignorant, so ignorant. Well, following on on that point, let's talk quickly before we go to the Q&A about coalition building and the concept of allyship. Uh, to our audience, we're going to get to questions in a few minutes. So do carry on sending them in. We've got loads that have come in so far. Emma, I want to ask you, you know, in your book, you argue that the language around allyship in the current anti-racist movement and the language around privilege is not useful. You say it's got an almost groveling tone where white people have to feel guilty and chastised. What do you mean? Okay, so when we when I need to qualify that a little bit. That's not exactly exactly what I said. I'm sorry. Yes, <laughs> um, please come. So I feel that allyship, you know, reinforces a power dynamic that has its links in white saviorism with its relationship to kind of white superiority and, 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 and white supremacy. It reinforces a power dynamic that makes me feel really uncomfortable. When I was reading around allyship, I was seeing references to the ally and the victim. And I feel, as, as I say in the book, allyship offers charity at the expense of solidarity. So coalition is about creating solidarity. Allyship is, um, you know, there's these kind of ideas of charity and, and benevolence and, 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 and helping, helping a victim. And um, when I was like years ago researching something about abolition and I came to realize that many of the abolitionists, not all, but a lot of them were actually also racists because they were very, very invested in the narrative of black inferiority, where they differed from those that wanted to, you know, that fought to continue slavery was that they felt that black people, people of African descent should be protected rather than enslaved. But it was still in a very paternalistic and patronizing way, you know, and they were still racist, invested in, in, in black inferiority. A lot of the, the language and behavior around allyship, you know, it feels like a trajectory. It feels like part of that, that same kind of, that same patronizing kind of 
dynamic. So I want to move away from that. I have a quote from um, one of my favorite scholars, Fred Moten, Black American cultural critic, philosopher, and poet. And he, I quote him in the book where he says, I don't need your help. I just need you to recognize that this shit is killing you too, however much more softly, you stupid mother F word. I don't know if I can curse on intelligence squared. But I feel like he says it with affection. You know, he says it tongue in cheek. With that being said, there are white... One of the things I do in the book is look at how, like, the, the, the diversity of experiences and material realities that also exists amongst white people, you know? And I think this narrative of uncomplicated privilege, I, you know, take Barbara Fields, a, a black uh, American scholar, and saying that constantly attacking white privilege, you know, won't build the necessary coalitions. But with that being said, there are also white people that are incredible. So we're, our societies are grossly unequal, un, unequal. And at the, the, the upper echelons of society, it just so happens that those with the most power and privilege do happen to be white, you know, so there are a lot of very privileged white people and a lot of their privilege does come directly, as Alex demonstrates, you know, um, I talk in the book about members of parliament, you know, people that are still very much part of our ruling classes today, they are the direct descendants of people who made these obscene fortunes through the trade in black life, you know. So the reckoning that they, that, that needs to kind of happen there is maybe different to the reckoning that like, yeah, white people kind of aren't a monolith. But one of the things that I find frustrating about the present moment is this emphasis, overemphasis on interpersonal privilege, which is never going to be, a, okay, so there are some exceptional cases, you know, kind of like Alex, like people who are the direct descendants of slave owners, okay? There's interpersonal privilege there that's kind of on a, on a very case-specific level. But white people more generally, the overemphasis on interpersonal privilege, I feel, you know, will not bring about the necessary redistribution of resources that is required to address the inequalities that still, you know, uh, plague our societies, many of which have their roots in this historical period that we're talking about. But we need a redistribution of resources through policies, through things like reparations, even through looking at things like, you know, universal basic income. We need policies, we need programs, we need redistributive, we need ways of making society more equal that can never happen at the level of interpersonal exchange between individuals, you know? It's the wrong emphasis. Emma, Emma's book, I can't say Emma's book is enjoyable for someone like me. It made, it made, it made my, my flesh crawl at some time because oh. it, it pictures me and many people like me. And there's a chapter on white saviorism and the problems with it. I mean, I'm, you know, I was familiar with the phrase already, but it just made me, you know, just you want to want to punch my head really uh, I, I'd worked for Oxfam for four years in East Asia I, I, I have been a professional white saviour uh, and, <laughs> and I'm aware of some of the problems but I, I think you know what, what you what Emma says very clearly and became more and more I've learnt a lot you know I started this book four years ago I have learnt a lot obviously I but one of the things you make the point very well Eric Williams makes the point very well that this is a story about capitalism and capitalism will exploit people whenever it can and will find systems and moral justifications for doing so. It does it today. It did it 250 years ago. So as someone who has worked for charities 
and I have to say, members, some members of my family and I are giving to charities since we've discovered in Jamaica and in, in, in Britain, since we discovered this history, because it makes us feel a little bit better. There is no point. In fact, you may be doing harm by just being charitable and an ally if you're not also working to change the systems. And Emma says that with, with such frank you know, that's the bit. Those are the bits I underlined most of all in the book. And it's why it's why we need to read it on reparations. I, I mean, I you know, one of the things I'm well aware. And again, you know, I'd, I'd, the best bit of writing this book was going to Jamaica and Tobago, something my ancestors and my family since <laughs> failed to do, more or less, and asking people what they thought and what I, they thought I should do. You know, and hearing something uh, and getting some having some wonderful conversations and hearing a lot of kindness and generosity and forgiveness as well, not for me necessarily, but for white society and white colonialism. But of course, everyone's interested in reparations, and 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 I think a lot of people made the point here. The, the reparations call from Caricom has been grossly and willfully misinterpreted, particularly by the British press. It, it, it is about starting to talk about practical ways to bring about acknowledgement, you know, more reconciliation, friendship in for the future. It's an inspiring and wonderful idea and I'm deeply ashamed. Emma um, also says don't you know guilt's useless, shame a little less so. But uh, I'm deeply ashamed that my government you know and I am a part of it, I'm part of Britain's elite, my father was a Tory MP, has has laughed in the face of the Caribbean nations who want to talk about reparations and reconciliation. As a Scot, I'm hoping that here, up here, where we're a little more progressive than the English, we might um, be able to do something about it. But, but my view is that if you, you know, I get, I'm getting an, a pleasing number of people who are writing to me since the book came out saying, what, what should I do? I, I kind of want to pass them over to Emma, but um, but but what I what I do feel is if you get them enlisted on if you get them enlisted on supporting scholarships in Jamaica or whatever, that is the entry drug. You know, it, it is because they then have to start acknowledging things, and you can then lead them gently forward to the notion that actually the systems that support racism and inequality in this country now need that's that's what they really have to work at. Well, I want to bring in some audience questions because we've had a lot, a lot coming through. And then Emma, we'll come to you and you can respond to Alex. On the reparation point, someone has asked Alex, do you feel you should personally make reparations in a monetary way? Is writing a book enough? And I know that the proceeds from the book are going to charities, I think, in Jamaica, which you can elaborate on. And a second question to you is from Mark. It can be hard to explain to relatives why the work described in both books is important and not wokery. I'm curious <laughs> as to Alex's reaction. How are people, are they open to this version of family history and has it changed the dialogue? Another question also asked, what has been the reaction to your book, both from family members and from you know, wider readers? So I think, well, so thanks very much for, for all the interest uh, I, I, well, I think you know, repar- no, there's nothing, there is no money in the world that can repay for three and a half quarter million Africans and all their uncounted descendants enslaved and then the havoc the neglect that we left the, the freed enslaved people in for the next hundred years in the Caribbean colonies it, it, can't, it cannot be done uh, so and, and the, it you know, I can try and audit what the damage my family, my ancestors did, 
and you come up with impossible figures. A thousand, I think almost a thousand people enslaved, I get from the records, but I can't begin to count their descendants. I don't even know their names because we stole them and gave them comedy names out of Shakespeare, like Othello instead. I, I, so, so all one can do, I think, you know, is try, is say, the inherited privilege we have from that time gives us unique tool, you know, unusual tools to try and address what's unfair and unequal and racist in society today. And also to look at how we can be a better post-colonial, have a better post-colonial relationship with the Caribbean, which involves actually not taking all their nurses and doctors and not recompensing them, but instead trying in some way to get, help them to de- help them to develop to become as rich as we've managed to be. We could start giving them some COVID vaccines to begin with. So he, 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 I, the reparation can't be done in, in, in a very real sense, but also the task of trying to repair reparative to have Pursue reparative justice is a good one and could have benefits. That that was one. Uh, and on on my family, I mean, my family, you know, uh, they they reflect white Britain. I'm afraid. I, I mean, many of them have gone, have welcomed the book and said, "Better in better that this is out. Better to shed light on things." Let's hope we can. Some good can come of it. Some others have gone. Have called me a traitor. Lots of people have called me. I've had a lot of abuse over the book, but you know, not least from readers of the Times, where where bits of it were written. But but I don't get the abuse that that people of colour who write on these subjects get. I mean, I can, I can t- this is abuse from idiots. They don't attack me because of my skin colour as well. So I'm quite, you know, I, I, I. But my family, the bulk of them, my mother. You know, who went from being pretty defensive to going, you know, this has changed the way I look at my, my history and my family, but I'm glad we did, glad you've done it. So I'm pleased with her. She helped me uh, transcribe some of the documents too. Can I just say with reparations as well, like uh, with CARICOM, they're not asking for monetary. It's, it's not, they're not like, oh, we need a payout. It's a, it, it's a, it's a, a list of um, things like, you know, fairer fairer trading relations investing in the heritage economy in museums in education that's really the um th- that's kind of the the area w- the reparations is it's a, in it's a 10 point plan it's a yeah, 10 yeah. point plan it's a really good plan it, you know it, and it's a sort of, and it has other echoes in history not least what happened what happened in germany after the war Mm-hmm. No, I, I mean, it, it, you know, it's very doable. And I, I think I think with the Caribbean, again, it's this this willful amnesia. You know, even when we talk about the, the Windrush generation, I was like, oh, there was no work in the Caribbean. So they came here. Why was there no work in the Caribbean? Why was there no industry in the Caribbean? Because the Caribbean were, was just set, those countries were just set up as, you know, factories, essentially, like to extract the wealth and labor of, of um of, of Africans to to enrich to enrich Europe and once those economies once those crops from sugar you know all of the stuff that was kind of all of the um the crops that were cultivated and grown in the Caribbean once the bottom dropped out of those industries you know there was kind of often there was there was no work 
left in those countries. That's why there was that's why there there was no industry. There was never any investment in those countries. You know, they were just set up as extractive enterprises to enrich. In this case. England, the UK. So this, when we start that kind of Windrush story at like, oh, you know, it just starts in the kind of mid 20th century and we invite these people over and they just happen to be at a loose end. Why are they in the Caribbean and why can't they find work in the Caribbean? You know, this is such an intimate part of Britain's history and it's just completely, completely misrepresented. And That's absolutely right. And, and, and one of the things, one of the things about People say things to me, educated white liberal people, that they wouldn't dare to say to anyone, anyone of colour. And one of the and the things that they say, well, they won't amaze you, Emma, because you, you know all this. About, but there's the same old whataboutery that we hear wherever. You know, what you know? What about the pharaohs? You know, why aren't we, why aren't the Italians apologising to us for what the Romans did? And you go, you really think that's a serious question when you can't see that this is about something going on in our society today? And the other whataboutery they use, which is 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 probably more the most appalling of all, is is this. Endless, but we gave the countries their independence. There was a letter, the lead letter by Robert Lacey, the Queen's biographer in the Times yesterday, but they sh- we gave them their independence. We set them up, you're quite right, as places we could extract from, but also as, as to buy British goods, as captive, yes. a captive market, and, and then allowed them to come and fight in our wars in Europe and then apparently didn't put any any memorials to them, to them. I keep saying that to people who died. I, it, 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 one of our chief problems is, and I do get a lot of it, is is this great white ignorance. And you call it amnesia. I think that's a bit too polite because it's clearly willful. Willful amnesia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we have fi- we have five minutes left, and I'm keen to get through a few more questions. No, this is a fascinating conversation, and actually, I want to read out a comment that one of our audience members sent in saying, this conversation gives me hope. Emma speaks what I have been feeling and saying to myself, and Alex gives me hope that potentially white people can become awakened to this. So I think that, you know, this has been a really constructive conversation. Emma, I'm going to group a few questions together. If you are able to deal with them quite swiftly, that would be appreciated. <laughs> what, what, what's the difference between allyship and coalition building? And in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, what would need to be achieved for you to consider it a turning point in the push for equality rather than just another talking point, of which there have been so many? Okay, so what I do in the book, I'm going to try and answer this really quickly. What I do in the book is link the invention of race and subsequently the the racism that still determines who has opportunity and access to this day. I link the beginning of that system with the um, with the kind of the close to the origins of capitalism. You know, I say that racism and capitalism are are siblings. So I kind of connect those dots in a way that uh, liberation, black liberation activists have. Done, always done in the past, but seems to be kind of weirdly absent in the current moment, where instead of looking at capitalism, we have this overemphasis on interpersonal privilege, okay? So I, I trace the relationship, you know, kind of between race, between capitalism, that form of capitalism, which exploited, which destroyed and it kind of 
exploited black life is destructive to life more generally. You know, it also, it, it also, ex, it, it exploits most people to varying degrees, but it does exploit most people to varying degrees. It also exploits the Our, it exploits the Earth's resources, you know, our, our, the way in which we live is um, unsustainable. We are destroying and poisoning, you know, our, our planet because of this system. The relationship between environmental justice and racial and fighting for racial justice, you know, um, that, that, that link should be made as well. So, In the book, I, I talk about how when whiteness is invented, it's this system that is extractive, exploitative, and um, also has given us this really binary, um, damaging way of thinking, but primarily that it's an extractive and exploitative system. What coalition, what allyship does is it fails to join all those dots. It just looks kind of, it just looks at the way... Like I said, it gives it gives uh, charity at the expense of solidarity. So what we need to do is see that the way in which all of these different forms of exploitation find their source in the same place. So even though we experience, you know, oppression and exploitation in different ways, given what demographic, depending on what demographic we belong to, we can usually locate the, the source of our diminished life opportunities in the same place. If we can build coalitions, we can create mass movements that are so powerful that they cannot be ignored rather than working in kind of individualized silos. You know, I talk about the coalitions of the past that the, you know, the, the Black Panthers and Fred Hampton, whereby it was the, the emphasis was on creating yeah these mass movements that were so powerful, they couldn't be ignored. So to me, that's the difference between allyship and coalition. The other, what would I like to see happen? I would like to see while so while this naming whiteness is you know, necessary. Uh, I, Kathleen Cleaver, former Black Panther and professor, she says that the reason that um, our attempts at anti-racism continuously fail is because we fail to engage with the way in which whiteness Okay, so whiteness has anti-black, uh, whiteness has, whiteness is kind of focused on anti-blackness, you know. However, as, in addition to its anti-black functions, it also has, there are deep psychological attachments to whiteness that people who are racialized as white have, right? We really need to also address address those. We need to shift. We, we need a way of mainstreaming the idea that race is a social... While we're tackling racism, we also need people to understand the ways in which race is a social construction. I'm not seeing that part of the, of the kind of problem being addressed. If I saw that being addressed in relation to... Sorry, in addition to kind of anti-racism, I, I, I would feel more confident about the direction that we're going in, if that makes sense. Thank you. <laughs> That's brilliant. And we've sadly run out of time. I think this conversation could have gone on for an hour. I want to give the last word to Alex. Very quickly, Alex, in a few sentences, you know, to our audience watching, what one thing would you want them to take away from this conversation, to go away, especially as a white person, if they are white people watching, you know, to be, you know, a coalition builder and in solidarity? Well, Keep learning, 
you know, keep or keep unlearning. It's quite a good way to put it. Uh, read, 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 read. As uh, as lots of people, as Emma puts it, read Emma's book. I think. I mean, just to answer the person who talked about uh, George Floyd and, and and after that, I think you know, as a member of the Britain's white ruling class, though somewhat lapsed, I'm. Uh, I don't. I think a lot of people aren't aware just how how huge that has been for we who run the place. People are terrified, and you could, you know, however annoying and, and you know horrifying the push the pushback has been, and how racist it is from Jeremy Clarkson's comments through to our dear Prime Minister's remarks. That shows how the the ruling class is scared, and that means things can happen. Things are happening. So, plus, you know, as my fifteen year old daughter put it the other day well aren't all the racists actually going to die off quite soon which on the ground you know that was her point of view but you know the you know we have the youth and we have the future on our side and um i think i feel inspired actually particularly when i get into conversations like this can i just say really quickly as well just one line so just to remember that one of the reasons that race was invented was to prevent coalitions and that solidarity is subversive sometimes people think solidarity is just trying to it's solidarity is trying to placate white people it isn't that couldn't be further from you know what i'm about but solidarity is subversive it's dangerous and powerful yeah <laughs> Well, what a note to end this event on. Thank you both so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. I'm sure our audience has enjoyed it as much as I have. Thank you to the audience for tuning in. If you're new to Intelligence Squared, please do sign up to our mailing list or follow us on Instagram and Twitter for more information on upcoming events. And also, we're very excited to finally be returning to venues in the autumn. So early bed tickets for in-person events are now on sale at 15% off. And if you're an Intelligence Squared Plus subscriber, you'll get an additional 15% off, so a total of 30%. For more information on this, just go to our website. Until next time, from all of us at Intelligence Squared, have a good evening. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. <laughs>